On the show today, I'm joined by not one, but two very special guests. First up is improviser extraordinaire Jonathan Mangum, from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Then, it's my chat with Australian director Warwick Thornton, whose brand new film Sweet Country is in cinemas now. All that and a very special announcement, so stay tuned, it's going to be a great episode of Talk To Me. Don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome to Season 5 and 2018 of Talk To Me. I'm your host Benjamin and I could not be more excited to be here with you today. Now first up, I've got an interview with Jonathan Mangum who is best known for his work on Whose Line Is It Anyway and Let's Make a Deal. And uh, we recorded this chat uh, sometime last year and I'm very excited to share it with you now and also to let you know that Jonathan is going to be on tour with Wayne Brady also from Whose Line. Uh, he's going around Australia uh, it's around this June, so you can go to his website and check out the dates of that. So that's first. And then is my chat with uh, Warwick Thornton, the director of Sweet Country. But first, a very special announcement. I'm ecstatic to announce exclusively here today that this year, across all of their events, I'm going to be a guest at Supernova Comic Con and Gaming Expo. They are a fantastic convention that I've done interviews for for years, but this year, I'm going to be one of the special guests. I'll be emceeing panels and running interviews there on the stages with some of the special guests who so far include Peter Capaldi, John Barrowman, Pearl Mackey, and a whole lot more. So they've got six events over the year. Melbourne, Sydney, Gold Coast, Brisbane, Perth, and Adelaide, and I will be at all of them. So if you're in Australia this year, you can come to Supernova, see some amazing guests, and me. And if you're a worldwide listener... You will also reap the benefits because that means I'll have a whole lot more interviews with those exciting guests as well. So I can't wait to join Supernova on the road this year. You can already buy tickets for the Melbourne and Gold Coast events in April. And that's with, uh, with Peter Capaldi and John Barrowman. So it's going to be a fantastic lineup. They've got a whole lot more to come. It's going to be a really exciting year and I cannot wait to work with Supernova across the year and be one of their very special superstar guests. But now, back to the show. Here's my chat with Jonathan Mangum. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Now, Jonathan, you've performed both improv and in straight dramas. What was your first love? Uh, oh, I like making people laugh um, uh, more than making myself cry. Is that a good answer? I think that's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, uh, yeah. yeah, I just like comedy. I just like... Uh, it's just, it's just, uh, it's really enjoyable to me. And and from from comedy, how did you transition into dramas like NCIS and, and Bold and the Beautiful and some of the other shows that you've worked in? Uh, you know, it's not really, it's it's not really much of a transition. I mean, uh, as much as I'd like to th think I'm a great dramatic actor, even the parts I've done, like on NCIS and like uh, in the Bucket List with Jack Nicholson. The, the parts I've done have all been kind of quirky comedy parts in dramatic things. So, um, unfortunately, I think I'm doomed to, to, to be doing comedy, uh, even in dramas. <laughs> well, at least you're still making people laugh. <laughs> ah, thanks, man. Well, improv is, is notoriously difficult. So what training did you undertake to get to the point you are now? No, I, I wouldn't say, just, just to back up, I wouldn't say it's notoriously difficult. I think... Uh, I think it's like anything. Um, magic is a, a good way to, a, a good uh, analogy. You know, you see a guy do a trick, you're like, how did he do that? It's like, well, he's done it 
a hundred thousand times and the first 99,000 times he was terrible at it. Uh, improv is, is really like anything else. If you just do it all the time. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm 45 now and I started when I was 19 and I've done it every single weekend plus even weekdays of my life since I was that age. So you pick anything and do it that much. And if you're not good, then, then, um, then there's something wrong with you. <laughs> so were there any times early on that you, you died terribly that you can remember? Um, I can't remember, but yes. Uh, I think it's a good defense mechanism to forget. But yeah, of course, I've sat there, said something to complete quiet and grasshoppers. You know, there's even a, there's even a thing that's worse than bombing, which is when you say things that makes the audience angry. And I've done that too in the past. <laughs> I remember they're just like they're not. They're like, get off, go away. <laughs> we, we we go get off and leave. We don't want to see you or hear you. So that's even worse than just bombing. Mm. Um, so that's happened. Um, but yeah, that's anything. I mean, you can't. You you need to embrace being terrible at something before you're good at it. Of course. And how do you deal with hecklers and people sort of screaming at you in an improv scenario? Well, I, I love hecklers of improv because, first of all, there's not many because they're they they're a little more wary of improvisers. I think because we we love at improv when things go wrong. When when something is unexpected, that's when we can really prove to the audience it's all made up. So I I invite hecklers. The, the only problem is when you know if a heckler is someone that's gonna like slow the show down or kind of ruin it for others. Like if if they get in the way of others enjoying it then it's not really, it doesn't really help. And, you know, we'll have them removed from the audience. But, but you know, in 20-something years of doing this, there's been hardly any hecklers that have had to been, uh, that would need to be removed. We had people that, you know, were heckling, and then we'd, you know, just shut them down or, or just rip on them for the next hour and a half, and the audience loves that. And it shuts them down, too. And maybe they secretly like it. But... As far as people that just are going to sit there and just kind of ruin the show, hardly any ever. I can't even think of one. Well, makes your life a little bit easier then. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've actually been booked as a guest star for an improv show here in Adelaide. What advice would you give me? Uh, just pr uh, f fake it till you make it. Act like every single thing you say is not only uh, a correct thing but is the most possibly correct thing to say and if the improvisers that you're with are good then they also will treat anything you say as not only the right thing to say in that moment but the only thing that could have ever been said and as long as everyone is doing that uh it's impossible to go wrong because there's no bad ideas because if they are accepted with 100 percent commitment um it, ju it just can't it cannot go wrong if you do that, and easier said than done, of course. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll, we'll find out, or Australian audiences will find out in about a month's time. <laughs> oh, great. No, uh, one, of, one of the first instances I remember seeing you on TV was in the Drew Carey show. Now, you mm -hmm. joined it after it was quite well established and I think, season eight. Did that make it a little bit harder for you to find your feet and, and fit into that cast? Uh, not really. I mean... Those everyone there was so nice, and Drew Carey being one of the nicest guys that um, I've ever met, uh, they were super friendly, super nice. I had met him actually before 
because Wayne had done Who's Line um, before I got on the Drew Carey show. So when I got on, Drew knew I did improv, and that's when he said, hey, you should, uh, why don't you come and do one, some of these improv sets with us um, down at the improv in, in um, Hollywood. And so I would go do that for a while, and then I started touring with Drew uh, on a regular basis, as well as Wayne. Mm. So it was very welcoming, the whole, the whole cast and crew. I can't say enough good things about that show. Now, when shows like that, you know, they do so well critically and audience-wise, is there any additional pressure on the cast or on the crew and the writers to make sure that it stays where it's at? I mean, there's always pressure to, to do great, but I think once you've, once you've been on the air for, I want to say, three or four years and you've, you're a hit, uh, you've kind of you've done it, right? So anything else, this is just my opinion, but I, I kind of feel like anything past four years of having the same show on is all just icing, right? I mean, you've, you've got the show on. It was a hit. It's gotten picked up. Everyone loves you. If you can keep doing it, that's icing on the cake. But you, you've, you've accomplished your goal. The, the impossible task has been accomplished. Yeah, you've made it past 100 episodes. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that's a big one. The 100 episodes is definitely big. But no one ever, I mean, you know, it, it's what's really hard is uh, jokes and comedy aren't hard when it comes to sitcoms. It's the actual stories because, believe it or not, you run out of stories pretty quickly. And that's why, you know, even some of the, if you ever watch a, a TV show and you're like, well, that was kind of a lousy episode. Just think that 12 to 13 to 15 of the top writers in Los Angeles sat in a room for sometimes 16 hours a day, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning, uh, working, trying to get a good story out because it is one of the hardest things to do over and over and over again. Mm, mm, it certainly is. Now, yeah. obviously, shows like that uh, are you know, different in the making of compared to you know, NCIS, Bold and the Beautiful. Was there anything as an actor that you noticed different on set between comedy and then the, the dramas? A couple things. I mean, um, I, I remember on um, NCIS... Uh, I was in one of the scenes, and the director, I, for, I forget his name, I think it was Tony at the time, said, no, do it do it smaller. you know. And I was like, okay, it's a drama, I'll, I'll do that line smaller. I did it, and he goes, no, 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 do it even smaller. I did it even smaller. And he's like, hey, tr just barely whisper it. And I was like, oh, okay, I mean, uh, are you going to hear? I was a little worried about being heard, even with the microphone. Uh, but he said that, and then, of course, when I watched it later, I was like, oh, yeah, it's just you can you can sometimes just barely move your lips and whisper a line and it, on screen it looks normal and natural um so yeah there is there is an adjustment uh especially going from a drama like ncis to uh something like the drew carey show mm. now in addition to all that you're also the announcer on let's make a deal how did that job arise for you <laughs> it's it, it, the job arose in, in the best way jobs arrive which is your buddy gets a job and says Hey, put my friend on this show with me. I mean, that literally is what happened. Um, Let's make a deal is a game show where audiences are offered, you know, prizes in exchange for other prize mystery prizes. And Wayne Brady is the host, and we've been friends since we were teenagers and doing improv together. And they said, "Who do you want to be your sidekick?" And he was like, "Hey, Jonathan." And so I had never announced anything in my life before, and suddenly here I am on a primetime, uh, uh, sorry, daytime CBS game show. Uh, doing something that so, some people are probably practicing and hoping to be an announcer someday. And here I am that has never done it, suddenly ha having to do it. 
and uh, it was it was pretty surreal, I have to say. Mm. So did you sort of just make it up as you go along, or did the network say this is this is how it goes, or take well, it's funny fly? because they I, I had never because I had never announced anything. I go well, I I don't know what I'm supposed to sound like. So uh, on our show, it's it's more like an improv variety show than just a game show. So even though I do announce what the prizes are. I'm also making up improv songs with Wayne, and we're doing raps and doing battles and doing all kinds of fun things that, that aren't announcing. But as far as the announcing goes, that first time when I had the script for, I think it was a car, and I was supposed to say it's a new car, and I was supposed to describe the car, and I was like, uh. So I did, I did my impression of what I thought a game show announcer sounded like, thinking that they would say, okay, that's real funny, knock it off, quit messing around, and just would do it right. And after my impression, they go, yeah, okay, great. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? That's that. My impression is is it? Yeah, that's it. You you did a good impression. Just keep doing that. So I was like, okay, it's a new car. It's a blah, 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 blah. <laughs> they they said it was fine, so I kept doing it. And here you are, what four or five years later? No, no? nine years later. Nine years. Ninth season. Wow, that's that's been around yeah. a lot longer than I thought. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, since you've been doing it for for nine years, does it become in any way monotonous? You know, the the producers were really smart with Wayne and myself, knowing that we're both improv guys. They say, you guys can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. The only thing that has to be done is you have to play these games, and you have to describe the prizes accurately. I can't go, it's a car, and it looks cool. I have to read what the, what the car actually is. But other than that, we have no holds barred, which means that, Sometimes we'll just go off on a filthy rap that is rated R <laughs> that we'll, we'll, we, we know will never air, but they let us do whatever we want because we don't feel trapped in the daytime television. And then they'll go back and they'll just cut everything out that's not right. But they never tell us, do this like a daytime show. They go, just have fun and do whatever the heck you want and we'll cut out the dirty stuff. Hmm. So what and is, we make a pretty hmm. funny gag reel at the end of every year with a lot of, <laughs> a lot of inappropriate uh, daytime uh, jokes, but we have to entertain ourselves too. Of course. And where can listeners find that gag reel? Oh, it's it's not for uh, it's not, it's not, not for public. public to see. <laughs> <laughs> so, what does an average shooting day on on Let's Make a Deal look like? It's actually super quick, which is awesome. Um, the cameras and everything, and they have to block everything in the morning. But Wayne and I and Tiffany. And Kat, our keyboard player, we don't have to be there for that. So I think we show up about 11, get in hair and makeup. Then we'll do three shows uh, right in a row. Um, and we're usually done by 6.30. We do this four days a week. And we do it for about four months. And that's uh, 175 episodes. And so our whole season is done in four months, which is great because it gives me time to do other things like writing and pitching uh, that I'm doing now. And it gives Wayne a chance to do uh, – actually, right now he's doing Hamilton uh, in Chicago, which is uh, – I just went and saw him, and it was super awesome. You must be one of the only people in the world to have seen it. Getting tickets to Hamilton's the impossible. It, yeah, it's, people, <laughs> I tell people the way to see Hamilton is the same uh, way to get on Who's Line, which is uh, to make your best friend the star of the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, um, in addition to all, all of that, you mentioned writing and, and pitching. What projects yeah. are you trying to sell at the moment? Well, I've been doing a lot of... Um, writing and then shooting pilot presentations, which is like a short version of the, the show you want to uh, to make. So one of my writing partners is Aaron Shore, and he's a, an executive producer from The Office and from Everyone Loves Raymond. And so we 
sold a show to the Playboy channel. Uh, when I say Playboy, I don't mean boobies because they actually got out of the booby business, so they just wanted comedy. So we sold something to them. We have a couple other projects that we're pitching. We have a feature film that we want to pitch. Um, I love development. I love writing and just making things. Um, so hopefully we can do more of that in the future. Mm. And if our listeners wanted to, to stay in touch with you and just see where all these projects, you know, if they eventuate, where where would they be able to look for your details? Uh, they go to my website, jonathanmangum.com. Um, also, um, follow me on Twitter, which is at mangum1, the number one, or Instagram is at jmangum1. Um, usually have updates and uh, info on where I'll be out touring and what they can see me on. Lovely. Now, back in 2007, you were also in a movie called The Bucket List with yeah. uh, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. What was it like making a, a movie with actors of, of such a high caliber and, and esteem? It was, uh, it was really surreal because there was a, there was a scene where uh, uh, Jack Nicholson, I, I wish I could say uh, I call him Jack, but no, I, I call him Jack Nicholson. Uh, he, he and I were sitting at a table together and there was no one else really around us. And they're doing lighting and they're tweaking. And, it, you know, it takes a long time to get a scene ready to shoot. And so it was just like 45 minutes of me sitting shoulder to shoulder with Jack Nicholson and no one else around. And, what, <laughs> I mean, it just, it's, it was insane. We had so many really cool conversations. He, he, he told me that he, he likes to take naps in the middle of the day. <laughs> and I said, hey, me too. Uh, he was uh, just charming and funny and it, it, it was weird because I kept thinking, I must be in a movie. I'm watching a movie of Jack Nicholson sitting next to me. But no, he's actually sitting next to me. We're actually having small talk. It was crazy. And then Rob Reiner would walk up and talk. And then I'm like, oh, my God, because Reiner directed it. And I'm like, I'm sitting here with Rob Reiner and Jack Nicholson. This is insane. I didn't say it out loud, uh, luckily, but it was, it was pretty strange mm-hmm. and awesome. So is mainstream film work something you'd be interested in pursuing more of? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, the, it's, strangely enough, the television business and the film business are very separate. They're, they're, they're different enough so that people that work in television aren't always auditioning for films, and people that are working in films aren't always being a part of television. It's a, they're strangely separate for two things that are so close together. Uh, but I, I do love doing that, and, um, uh, hopefully I can do more. Mm. Now, you say that, and I find that really interesting because it's much the same here in Australia, but stage and theatre and even musical theatre seems to blend with both TV and film actors. Why do you think that is? In Australia, you mean? Well, just in general, I don't know if you find that over there, but why do you think that theatre can be so easily done by film and TV actors where TV and film stay so separate? I'm not really sure. That, that That's a good question. Um but you are right. That is a phenomenon. I don't. Yeah, it's. I think it ultimately probably boils down to to uh, social circles and and the the people that make television, uh, the producers and the people that make television are, are separate enough that their social circles are separate enough so that they're not always at the same parties and events. So that's not completely true for big. Uh, award ceremonies but just in general Mm. um it seems to be people like to work with the people that they hang out with the most and that might be the answer to your question or i might just be an idiot 
<laughs> well, I mean, uh, you, you know, you've worked with Wayne a lot, and I've I've cast my one of my very good friends in about the last four projects I've done. So you know, friendship does work for getting roles. <laughs> now, um, yes, it does. Yeah. Now you're probably perhaps best known for your work on Whose Line Is It Anyway, and that show has been running since the '90s. So what do you think it make? What What do you think makes it so popular? I think people just love to see. Uh, people on the high wire because it, it literally is uh it, it, is, it is scary to do you know it's fun watching people like um you know ryan styles who is he walks across the tightrope perfectly and he doesn't even flinch like he's gonna fall and then you watch colin mockery and the guy looks like he's going to fall every second and both equally entertaining but completely different takes on on improv um I, it's just fun to watch people, you know, w- without a net, and that's what that show is. Mm. And do you get any time with the cast to just sort of, you know, jam or anything before you make the show, or is it just show up, film an episode, and, and see how it flies? You know, I do get to see the cast quite a bit. We we toured a lot together. Actually, before I even did Who's Line, I toured with a lot of them. I did a show with Drew called Drew Carey's Green Screen Show, which uh, was short-lived, but... Uh, it was the same cast of Who's Line, and we did a show called Improvaganza, uh, which was another short-lived improv show. There's a bunch of clips on the internet of that show, which is fun if you guys want to uh, Google that. Um, so I did. I know. I know them all. I, I get to see them uh, quite a bit, and uh, they're really fun to hang out with. Mm. And have there ever been moments on the show where the games or the improvisers they just haven't worked for whatever reason that they've had to cut before it made it to the air? Usually not. Usually almost everything that's taped is pretty great. Um, the you know Occasionally there'll be a technical thing where um, maybe the sound wasn't working on someone's microphone and so they have to you know put, put it away because of that or if the, the lighting wasn't great. So there are technical reasons why certain things we do uh, don't get on. Um, but, you know, they uh, usually... The producer, Dan Patterson, ends up using almost everything that he tapes. That's pretty remarkable for any TV show. It is. It wasn't that way in the beginning, but I think they got really good at, at shooting it and making it and, and knowing which games which games work uh, in that situation. So what's your favorite game on the show? <laughs> There's a lot of fun games. I, I, there was a game that I used to play a lot when I was younger that we played a couple times on Who's Line. We haven't played recently, but it's called Forward Reverse. It's not really uh, improv per se. It's just more remembering what you did, uh, where the scene goes in the direction that the person calls it. So if they say forward, you're you're moving forward. And if they say reverse, you have to then go in reverse what you just did. And sometimes you reverse back before the scene starts. Um, It's super silly, but I just love big, physical, stupid games. Stupid is fun for me. They're certainly some of the fun ones to watch. Yeah. Now, Whose Line is returning to the CW sometime this year. Are you back in the yes. show? I am, yeah. Actually, I'm doing a taping uh, next week. So uh, I'll, usually they turn a taping into two or three episodes. So I will be back for this next season. I think it'll be my my 12th or 13th appearance on the Who's Line, which is, um, you know, I, you know, we were talking earlier about doing something, and then if it goes past it, it's just icing on the cake. So I feel like just getting on Who's Line the first time, that, that was a lifelong goal. So... Any additional episodes to me are just like, you know, woohoo, sugar. So 
um, I am just thrilled to be able to do any of them. Mm, it's a very, it's a very fun and exciting show. Yeah. Now you mentioned you've also done a lot of live uh, improv. Is that any different to the TV improv you do for shows like Improvaganza and Who's Line? It is. It is uh, uh, very different. Um, improv in its best form is is in front of a live audience. Um, so uh, you can literally do anything with a live audience. I mean, we'll we'll involve the audience. We'll run out in the audience. We don't have to worry about. Is the camera pointing at me? Is the lighting good here? These are all things we have to think about on whose line. You can't just go go just do something crazy because there's four camera guys. You have to make sure one of them is pointed at you because if they're not, no one's going to see what you're doing. Um, when it's live, you literally can do anything, go anywhere, say anything. Um, and one thing I really like about the live stuff is all the in-between stuff of when you're not even playing a game, you're just talking to the audience or you're messing with each other. That part is so much fun in a live show. Um, I'm, I'm sure any live improviser, uh, any, any improviser doing a live show will tell you that, that that part is sometimes just as good as some of the scenes. Mm. So where can our listeners around the world see you doing live improv throughout the year? What dates have you got set already? Well, it's, uh, you know, usually you will see me 99% of the time uh, with Wayne Brady. So we do a, we do a two person show with a keyboard player and, um, we kind of tour all around with that. So <laughs> the, the, the way I, I figure out is I just, because Wayne's so busy, I don't always hear when we're doing shows. So I usually Google Wayne Brady's tickets to find out when I'm going to work. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I find out about them. So if yeah, if you Google Wayne Brady tickets, um, they should pop up shows, upcoming shows. And uh, I, I think there, there may be plans in this June for your Australian listener, listeners uh, for us to go back to Australia. We've been about three times and uh, always had a great uh, time there. Well, this time you better... And I always ca- stop in Adelaide, too, where you are. Yeah, this time please stop in Adelaide. Flights to Melbourne are expensive. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, just before I let you go, is there anything else that you've got lined up that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Um, I just, uh, you know, I, I hope that there will be new things that I can mention later on that I can't talk about at the moment. But, again, if they just follow me on the Twitter, on the Instagram... Uh, even the Facebook, uh, Jonathan Mangum, I think is my name. Yes, that's my yeah. name. So uh, yeah, any of those places they can uh, catch up, and see what see what I'm doing. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, and I'll put links to all of your social media accounts in the show notes for the podcast, so everyone can stay in touch with you and see what you're up to. That was my chat with Jonathan Mangum, and don't forget to check out his tour of Australia with Wayne Brady this June. Next up is my interview with Warwick Thornton. Warwick became critically acclaimed for his direction of Samson and Delilah almost 10 years ago, and he's back now with Sweet Country, an exceptional film that's in Australian cinemas now. Here's my chat with Warwick. Enjoy. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. No worries, brother. Now, why did you decide to pursue a career in filmmaking? Oh, oh. You know how, you know how cinema... Cinema is escapism. Hmm. It takes you to places... Uh, when you go into the cinema, it takes you to... It opens a window or a door to a world that probably you can never go be to, whether it's, um, you know, I don't know, a Death Star or, or a desert in Central Australia in 1929, you know, and it, it kind of, for me, cinema was to escape the town I grew up in. Yeah. I, I'm from Alice Springs, born and bred, and I kind of, you know, it's a beautiful town, but I always wanted to get out of there. And then I, crews were 
you know, film crews were rocking up and I started getting jobs just carrying boxes and that and thought, well, this is how I'm going to get out of this town. And it was through making movies, not actually watching movies. So. And one thing I noticed is that in addition to directing this, you did the cinematography as well. Yeah. That's got to make life a little bit more complicated. Yeah, a, a bit, but the, the funny thing is I've been a cinematographer pretty well all my life. I went to film school uh, in Sydney and studied cinematography, three-year, you know, Master of Bachelor of Arts, whatever it was. And what happened was I started directing little short films and then what happened was other directors wouldn't hire me as a cinematographer anymore because no one wants a cinematographer who thinks he's a director on your film. Because you're the director, not the cinematographer. So it kind of, so, so nowadays I, I very rarely get hired as a cinematographer to shoot films for other people. Um, I, you know, I've, I've done some pretty big films. I, Sapphire, I shot Sapphires for Wayne Blair and you know things like that. But so when I do actually direct a film, I shoot it because that's the only way I can be the DOP again. And one thing that I found fascinating was in a couple of scenes of violence, you chose not to show that. And so there was the black screen of the rape scene and at the start yep. uh, with the fight. I thought that was actually more powerful than seeing... An audience, what, yeah. So why... I mean, it was an unusual choice. It clearly worked. But why did you decide to do that? Well, it's sort of... It's, you know, because your, your, your imagination is about a thousand times more powerful than any image that I can create. Um, I'm, I'm not into violence. Uh, I'm not into, you know, I, I, I hate doing nude scenes, love scenes, um, sex scenes, rape scenes. You know, if I have, if, 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 unless they're incredibly integral to the, to the, to the turning points in the movie, I'll rip them out of this. I'll rip them out of the script. I'll go, now nah, I'm not shooting that. Uh, you know, they have to have a real reason to be there, not a gratuitous kind of 14-year-old torture porn kind of idea. Um, so, you know, for me, it's really important to to work that stuff out properly and get it right. You know, so I kind of, I can't. It's not that I shy away from it, but I just think we, as filmmakers and directors, we we can be smarter and use the, the audience's imagination to actually make a much more powerful statement than actually some image that I can film of some poor woman being raped. And this film is hugely powerful with a lot of strong themes. What do you want audiences to walk away with from the film? Oh, God. That's a, that's a good uh, what, what, what would I want the audience to walk away? You know, we've, we've, got, we've got a really interesting history, a pretty dark history this country has. Mm. Um, a lot of it you won't learn in year 9, 10 or 11 at school because uh, Australia has a selective memory. Um, and, you know, what, what I want is to, say, to show Australia that actually, you know, Australia has a dark past. And the idea is that if you know more about the foundations of this country and how this country was created, you can actually make better choices about where this country is going. So, you know, and it's not, it's not a history lesson. The film is not a history lesson with an exam afterwards, but it's, it's, it's about just knowledge, and knowledge is power. And the more we know, the better we will be. Exactly. And I did notice that it was released the day before Australia Day. Yeah. Was that a conscious choice on your part or the part of the distributors? Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, no, yeah, it, it, it was both. Um, but the, the idea is that, you know, if we want to celebrate this country, well, we need to know about our past. Hmm. You know, we need to know. Um, people say that, you know, Australia was built on the back, you know, on the sheep's back, but it wasn't. It was built on the black's back. You know, free labour for the last 200 years um, is pretty well how this country was built.
Now, Australian cinema is unfortunately a hard sell to general audiences anyway. Yeah. When you're pitching a drama with a history aspect as well, yeah. how are you expecting to sell a film to the masses? Because it is very good, but yeah. I know people sometimes just don't go. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the funny thing is, um, this, this film is going to be released in every cinema in the world, basically. Every region is going to be released in France, it's going to be released in um, England, it's going to be released in the US. Mm. So, in a strange way, you know, this film is made for Australia, foremost, for us, about us, um, to help us. But this film will make its money around the world. So if the Australians don't come, it'll still actually, it's not a hard sell because it's actually going to make its money. So the rest of the world will know more about Australia than Australia will in a, in a strange way. So, you know, it's kind of, yeah. so if, if, if Australia doesn't come, if you, you know, we can lead the horse to water, but we can't make it drink, mm. the door's open, the cinema's open, but um, mm. if they don't come, um, it's, it's going to, financially it'll do all right. Don't worry about it. So I remember back at uh, the... Because, oh, sorry, because, Australia, because the world is actually interested oh, yeah. just as much in who we are and where we come from. You know, we might, if, if, if we want to stay in the dark and, and, and be, have denial about our history, well, the rest of the world won't be in the dark and they'll know more. <laughs> well, I remember when the film premiered at Venice yeah. and it got a standing ovation. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've put on all that hard work, it's there. How are you feeling just before it's finishing? Uh, what do you mean? Which of so, in terms of as a director, you've invested a lot of your time, a lot yeah. of your life into this film. Yeah, a couple of no, years. But nobody's seen it before. It's yeah. playing there. At, oh, how, how do you feel? scared. You know what I mean? Because you don't know. You don't really know which way it's going to roll. And you know, you know, Venice, Venice, Cannes, Berlin, Toronto. Um, you know, these are these are these are these are the big serious um, festivals in the world, and the audiences that, that 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 are coming to those those festivals are hardcore cinema files. You know, who love cinema and actually will travel around the world just to go to to that festival. And so it's pretty scary, you know, because this is this is seriously being judged by um, people who who watch every movie in the world and and have very, very strong opinions. If they don't like your film, they'll boom in the middle of it. And that's really, really hardcore. So to have that sort of, you know, to have them to have a standing ovation and, you know, all that kind of stuff was, um, made me feel really good. And does that make it sort of easier for you then to take it to international distributors once it gets that the, kind of reaction? It was pretty well sold to most Very of sold. the... Yeah, before it even hits... Um, before it hits Venice. If it's, in Venice, if it's in competition in Venice or Cannes, you're pretty well sold the world, unless you want to start a bidding war, and then you you don't sell it to anybody. You know, you have to be pretty arrogant and pretty That's cocky. Risky. It's very risky, because they could boo, and then you don't get yeah. anything. You know what I mean? So it's, like, it's kind of that balance, um, and so it's it's pretty well. And then you know, in all the smaller regions, basically pick it up then. Yeah. And obviously the film does star Sam Neill and Brian Brown. Mm -hmm. You've also, over your career, worked with a lot of unknown or new actors. Yep. Where do you find that talent? And is it easier working with someone who has no experience? It's, 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 no, it's not, but it is. Um, you know, um, Sam, Sam and Brian are incredibly amazing actors. They've made 100 million films. Um, and they, but they come with their own um, idiosyncrasies. Yeah. But so do people who've never been on a film before, you know. and. But where do I find them? It's sort of like, you know, when I, when I read a character or write a character in a film, I've always got an image of what they look like, and I generally start there with just a sort of a physical appearance. 
Um, I can teach anybody to act, um, but I can't sort of teach them to be who they are or what they look like in a strange way. So it's kind of, it's always, it's always, cause I, and being a cinematographer, it's always visual. The first, the first step to casting someone is visually, do they look like the right person? And then from there it goes into, well, can they act? Have they ever acted before? And then I'll, I'll start working on that with workshops and teaching them that, that kind of work. So that lead-up process with the actors before you start filming, how long does that take? Uh, not long. I'm, 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 not, I'm not big on casting. Mm -hmm. It's you're either right or you're wrong, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's, I'm pretty, you know, so, you know, I'll see someone, then maybe if they've done stuff before, look at, look at their work, you know, and then just go, do you want the job? You know, it's not like, oh, can you come, come back seven times and do, you know, eight different pages each time. I've, I've never been into that. Like... So from this point, this film's going to be released worldwide. So what's your next step as a director? What would you like to do next? Uh, another film? Or... Another film? Or oh, anything? What's, your, what's your next career Yeah, move? I don't know. I've got a couple of scripts that I've written. One's, one's kind of pretty well ready. I might do that. Um, I've got a, you know, a big agent in LA and an attorney and all that kind of crazy stuff. And I've been sent a couple of scripts that I haven't, re haven't read yet. There might be something nice there, and they might be really, really terrible, you know. So, it's, you know, my idea is if I make, you know, six really, really good films in my life, um, it's better than twenty. So, 100%. I just, yeah, I'll just take my time. And... Now, before I let you go, what advice would you offer to young Australian filmmakers looking to get a start in the industry? It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very small world, and there's a lot of people buying for recognition, or you know, the, the, the amount of money that's floating around, whether it's, um, you know, government funded or whether it's um, privately funded, and it's all about story. It's, it's only about story. Um, you've got to get a good story. And that's the most important thing. Something unique, something really, really clear, something really passionate. You have to have a reason to make it that's more than just a, an ego or a financial statement. You have to have a real reason to, to, to want to make a movie and you have to have a brilliant story. So just, it's all about the story, 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 story. What's written, what's written on the page or what's in your head is the most important thing. Well, thank you so much for your wise words and your time today. Sweet Country is excellent, and it's out Australia-wide and soon to be out in the rest of the world. No worries. Thanks, Willa. That was my chat with Warwick Thornton. Don't forget to check out Sweet Country in cinemas now. And also, don't forget about our fantastic supporters. They're back for 2018. Mad Zombie Collectibles and Palace Nova Cinemas. All of their details are on the supporters section of the website. And also, don't forget about the movie reviews, which we run all the time. I check out all of the latest cinematic releases from all of the distributors, and in part thanks to our supporters, Palace Nova Cinemas. So, go to the movie review section of the website to check out my thoughts on all the latest films. And don't forget about The Phoenix Files, Man in the Shadows, which we released last November, November 30th. It's an audio drama. It's part one of a trilogy, with parts two and three coming out later this year. It stars John Jarrett and Paul McGann. It's a sci-fi action thriller. It's fantastic. Fantastic. I loved making it and I hope that you guys enjoy it. It's available on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play or at phoenixfilesaudio.com. And as I said, I am very excited to be joining Supernova this year across their events. So go check out supernova.com.au, get your tickets, have a look at the guests and I will see you on the road this year. We'll be back for another exciting episode later this month. Until next time, I've been your host, Benjamin Mayer McKay. Bye for now.